0: Following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So, Advent is a season that we uh, we look back to the coming of Christ, to God becoming human. And we also look forward, Advent is a time when Christians look forward to his future coming as well, Christ's coming again in glory. And then we focus on the present, the ways in which Jesus makes himself known to us and comes into our lives afresh. So Advent has this way of, of kind of focusing us past and present and future as well, all building up to Christmas. And what we're going to do uh, as we journey through Advent is we're going to go through a short series, a lot shorter than the last series that we did on the gospel of john so not 22 weeks you'll be pleased to know just three weeks this time uh, heading into christmas and what we're going to do is we're going to look at three songs from scripture uh if you like you could call these christmas carols except they're not carols that we know of these are songs from scripture itself taken out of scripture three pieces of poetry or song In the Bible, which point us towards Jesus and focus us on who he is and the significance of his arrival in this this world and unpacks what that means. One of these songs that we're going to look at is in the Old Testament, that's today, and then over the next two Sundays, we'll look at two songs in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke uh, around the, the Nativity story itself. So for this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 2. Psalm 2. So if you want to grab your Bible, and uh, head in that direction, (laughs) Psalm 2. This is not really a typical kind of Advent psalm. It's not one of the ones that gets pulled out at Christmas much. In fact, on the surface of it, it doesn't seem to have much to do with Christmas. It doesn't mention Jesus um, or angels or shepherds or wise men or anything like that. So it sort of seems a bit disconnected from what we're supposed to be celebrating. But in fact, Psalm 2 is one of those pieces of the Old Testament that points us forward to Christ and fits into the whole big story that prepares us for the coming of Jesus. Uh, The way to really understand the event of Jesus' birth is to place it in the context of the whole unfolding story of God's redemption uh, before and after that event. And Psalm 2 gives us a way of doing that. So we're going to read this psalm together today, 12 verses, and uh, and then we'll reflect on it. I'll read it and then we will uh, reflect on it. So, verse 1 Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father God, we come this morning wanting to hear from you. We come today wanting to hear a fresh word from you. We come to you, Lord, believing this is your word to us today. This is what you have to speak to us. God, some of us come here today tired. Some come today frantically busy. Some come today overwhelmed with life. God, you meet us exactly where we are. So God, quieten our hearts. Enable us, God, with all the clutter in our minds right now and all the distractions in our hearts. Enable us, God, to focus on you, to hear your word, to be attentive to your voice, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Back in 2005, when Anna and I were living in the States, we uh, went and spent Christmas in New York. Anna's parents came out, met us there. Her grandparents met us there. We had this awesome Christmas in New York. And one of the things we did while we were in New York, is we went and saw Handel's Messiah performed at Carnegie Hall. Amazing experience. The whole orchestra and the four uh, lead vocalists. Uh, the Beautiful venue. Everyone gets all dressed up. It was a great night. And Handel's Messiah, uh, of course, is most famous for the climactic part in that performance, the Hallelujah Chorus. That's the big deal. You know, those triumphant lines, for the Lord, God, omnipotent. Raineth. Everybody's singing and playing at that point. Everyone stands up. That's the part where the audience ceremonially stands up. And by that time, you're ready to stand up because it's been a long performance. It's quite nice. Uh, and that was amazing. But just before the Hallelujah Chorus, you know, it's interesting that the, the section of music just before that is, is a total contrast to the, uh, the exalted triumph of the Hallelujah Chorus. You have this piece just before, which is very serious. It's very somber and mellow and solemn in its tone. It's sung by just a single vocalist, a male, a baritone or a bass. And I remember the guy who was singing it. And uh, he was this big guy, big, black, bushy beard. And the lines of that section are taken straight from Psalm 2. In fact, he's just singing his way through the first half of that psalm, right up to the most severe line about, he will dash them to pieces like pottery. And that is literally the last line before the Hallelujah Chorus. Total contrast. And I remember watching this guy who was singing, and as he sung these words, he was just looking out at the audience like I'm looking at you now, but he had a look of rage on his face. I mean, it was like he was angry. He was exasperated, and he was communicating all the feeling of these lines in the psalm, just this look of of anger, because that's the mood at the beginning of this song. That's the mood of the psalm. It is one of indignation, it's one of rage, it's one of anger. The psalmist is looking here at these nations trying to rise up against God, trying to throw off the shackles of God. And he's looking at these nations and saying, Who do you think you are? Who do these rulers of the earth think they are? Who do these kings think they are rising up again, conspiring against the Lord? It's this picture of of Yahweh, the Lord, reigning over the earth, but the nations don't like it. And they're trying to push back, and they're trying to free themselves. And the psalmist is just looking at them with indignation and saying, who do you think you are? They're railing against the Lord, and they're railing against His anointed. His anointed one, verse 2. That word anointed is the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah. That's where where that word comes from, Messiah. So we we think Messiah, and we typically just think Jesus. Like we just sang that song, Jesus, Messiah. We associate Jesus with Messiah. But Messiah in the Old Testament was a king. And not just any king. Messiah was a king whom God appointed. God's established king who He put in place. He anointed this king, poured His Spirit upon this king and anointed him for the task of ruling in God's place over Israel and ultimately over the nations. So when you see that word in Scripture, Messiah, you should always think king. That's the basic association. When we sing Jesus, Messiah, what we're really singing is King Jesus. Jesus the king. Jesus the one who stands in the lineage of all these Old Testament kings. In the Old Testament there were many messiahs. Every king who God put in place was a messiah. That's why this psalm talks about Uh, the Lord God and His King and His Messiah. And God looks at His Messiah and He says this to Him in verse 7, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Now that language is taken from God's promise to David. This This is what God said to David in 1 Samuel 7. He said, David, you're going to have a son. And I will be a father to him. And he will be a son to me. Not just a son of David, but a son of God. And I'm going to put him on your throne, David, and he's going to reign over the nations. And his, his reign, his throne, will endure forever. He will reign through the generations. This is what we call a Davidic promise. It is a promise made to David that there would be one who sits on David's throne whose rule would be unending whose kingdom would never end. So when the psalm talks about today, I've become your father and you're a son to me, this father-son language is Davidic language. It's saying this is the king promised to David. This is the one who's going to be in such a special relationship with God. He's going to be God's representative. God will rule through him and he'll fulfill that promise that God made to David back in 1 Samuel. So he will be my son, and today I've become your father. And then God says to his his king, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, in verse 8. The ends of the earth, your possession. Now that word inheritance is the same word that's used of the promised land given to Israel. That was their inheritance. God said to Israel, I'm going to give you this piece of land as your inheritance. He led them in it. But now the promise is getting bigger. Now God's not just promising one piece of land to Israel. He's saying to his king, I'm going to give you all the nations. The whole earth will be your inheritance. The whole earth is going to become the promised land over which you are going to reign. All of the nations will be this promised territory and your rule will extend out across the earth. The ends of the earth will be your possession. These are huge promises made with the expanding out of what the promised land is, far beyond the land of Canaan itself, to encompass all the nations of the earth. And the nations that resist this, the nations that resist God's rule, well, the promise is there. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces, like pottery. The nations that resist the rule of God's king are going to be crushed. They're going to be on the receiving end of some fairly fairly severe treatment. And those lines sound quite harsh, don't they, to our ears? If you transpose that situation onto the current geopolitical landscape, this king would end up looking like a complete tyrant, wouldn't he? I mean, you imagine, like John Key stands up at his next press briefing and says, God has told me that he's given me the nations as my inheritance. And any nation that stands against New Zealand will be broken like a, with a rod of iron, and we will dash the nations to pieces like pottery. Probably a lot of people would laugh, including God, and probably we'd lose some of our friends and allies around the world, I would imagine. But this is what's happening. You've got a head of state here who's claiming the sort of divine mandate to rule over the nations. In some some ways, it's no wonder that the nations are rebelling and rising up, But God has given this king a mandate over all the nations of the earth. In one sense, it seems tyrannical, uh, but this is where it's so important to place this psalm in the context of the whole unfolding story of Scripture and to place it in the stream of biblical history and let it float downstream from there and see where this ends up. And what we see is that this king ends up looking nothing like a tyrant. looks very different from what we might imagine this king to, to look like. The truth is there's no king in Israel's history that lived up to this. There's no historical situation you can point to where any king in Israel, had this kind of reign, had this kind of authority over all the nations of of the earth. It just didn't happen. In fact, what happened is that Israel's kings went backwards, that successively they were more and more unfaithful to God until finally God exercised His judgment and He took the land away from them, the land that He'd promised. Rather than expanding Israel's territory, God exiled them from the land and He allowed other nations to come in and conquer them. He deported the best and brightest of them And he took even the land they had away from them. So it seemed like, in terms of this psalm, for a long time Israel was moving backwards rather than forwards. And during those years of exile, and in the centuries after the exile leading up to Jesus, what happened is that psalms like this began to stir a fresh hope within Israel. They became not so much a celebration of Israel's past kings, they became a hope that God was yet to send a future king that maybe God was one day going to step in and, and bring about and raise up and establish the true Messiah that we've all been waiting for. All the past kings of Israel have failed. In Jesus' day, there wasn't even a king of Israel sitting on that throne. But the hopes of Israel were there. These were the hopes that hung in the air during the time of Jesus, that God is going to do something here. He's going to come. He's going to fulfill these promises. We haven't seen these promises fulfilled yet. God is going to raise up a son of David. Someone is yet to sit on David's throne. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to make Israel a world superpower again, and we will reign under this king over all the nations. Those were the hopes that were there. That was the air people breathed in the first century. And that was the expectation that Mary would have had when the angel appeared to her in Luke chapter 1 and said this. Verse 31, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. You see that son language again? The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Can you hear the language of Psalm 2 in the background there? Can you hear the promises going right back to what God promised to David to raise up his son? What the angel is saying to Mary is, Mary, this is happening now. This is coming true. All these promises are now being fulfilled, what God promised to David centuries ago. What God has promised through the Psalms. It's happening now, Mary. You're going to have a child. He is going to be this king. He'll be the anointed. He'll be the true Messiah the Messiah of all other messiahs, and he will reign on David's throne and his kingdom will know no end. This is going to happen, Mary. And it was, it was fulfilled. But not in the way that Mary expected, not in the way anyone expected. The kingship of Jesus unfolded uh, in some pretty surprising ways. The closest connection between Psalm 2 and Jesus is in Acts chapter 4. You don't need to turn there, but just let me read you this this prayer. It's an unusual place, but the the Christians, the believers in Acts, are praying. Peter and John have just been released from prison. The believers are praying. And they, they use the lines of the psalm in their prayer. They say to God, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they quote this part of the psalm. Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then here is how they apply that psalm to their situation. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So here are these these Christians in the first century looking at Jesus and particularly looking at his death and his suffering and the way in which he was attacked by the rulers of nations. And they're looking at Psalm 2 and they're saying there's a connection here. That Jesus is the one this psalm was pointing to. That with Jesus we see the nations raging against God's anointed. You see Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. You see Herod, the supposed king of the Jews. You see the Jewish religious authorities. You see these rulers over the the area of Judea at the time. You see them rising up against the Lord's anointed. This is happening. This is being fulfilled. When Jesus suffered and died... He received the the rage of the nations. He received the fury of the nations. All of that was concentrated against Him. What Psalm 2 prophesied would happen, happened. The nations of the earth, the rulers of the earth, conspired together against God's anointed one. Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, He bore the full brunt of the nation's fury. All human evil, all spiritual evil, all political evil, all moral evil, all of it was channeled against God on the cross in the form of Jesus, in fulfillment of the psalm. But in that very act of his death, Jesus won a victory over all the powers of evil. And that's the good news on the other side of the bad news, that through his death, Jesus conquered all these forces that rise up against God and seek to oppose him. Jesus shattered that. That's why I think the language of Psalm 2 is so severe at this point when it talks about he will rule over them with a rod of iron, when it talks about he's going to break them to pieces like pottery, it's not talking about a a political ruler destroying other people's armies. It's ultimately pointing to the way that Christ won a victory over evil on the cross, that Jesus won a victory over all the powers that stand against God, all the powers and forces and authorities on earth and in heaven that oppose the plans of God, that rage against God, Christ destroyed them on the cross. He won a decisive victory over them. He did that by defeating Satan, who stands behind all evil, all brokenness and sin in the world. Christ defeated him, and therefore all the ways in which Satan seeks to exercise his power on earth and in heaven. Jesus won that victory. That's what Psalm 2 is pointing towards. And then on the other side of that victory, Christ rose from the dead, and God made him Lord over all, gave Him all authority over heaven and on earth, and did exactly what this psalm prophesies. He gave Him the nations as, in, as His inheritance. And that is why I think in the Messiah, you have, in Handel's Messiah, you have Psalm 2 just before the Hallelujah Chorus. Because Handel must have known that you've got to have the victory of the cross where Jesus... Breaks the power of evil before you can have the victory of the resurrection, where Christ reigns triumphantly over all creation. Before you can have resurrection, there has to be death. There has to be the cross and then the resurrection. So Handel mapped that out perfectly. Christ dashed all evil to pieces like pottery and then took up his reign, his rightful rule over all the nations after his resurrection. There's a song that we have sung at shore um, from time to time. It's not Handel's Messiah, but it is called You Said. And I want to just look at the lines of the song because the chorus is taken directly from Psalm 2. The chorus of the song says, You said, ask and I'll give the nations to you. O Lord, that's the cry of my heart. Distant shores and the islands will see your light as it rises on us. So those lines, well, especially the first line, is plucked straight out of the psalm. Straight out of Psalm 2. Ask, and I'll give the nations to you as your inheritance. But when, when we've sung that, it sounds like what we're saying is we're asking God to give us the nations as our inheritance, right? Like in, in a kind of an evangelistic sort of way, asking God to help us to win the nations to Christ. But in the context of this psalm, who is God promising to give the nations to? Ultimately to Jesus. If Jesus is the promised Messiah, if Jesus is the anointed one of God, then that, that promise really belongs to Jesus. God's saying this to his king. God's saying this to Jesus, not directly to us. We benefit from his reign, but it's Jesus who's reigning over the nations. It's Jesus who's received the nations as his inheritance. So I think it's okay to sing that song as long as we know what we mean and we sing it. And we think about who's promising what to who here, that God is promising the nations to Jesus, not to us. It's a good example of not taking verses out of context, but looking carefully at who's actually speaking to who in the passage. So Jesus has received all the authority over the nations, and he is presently ruling and reigning. And he's going to reign, First Corinthians says, until the day when he returns and places all his enemies under his feet. He hasn't finally claimed the promise yet. He hasn't finally claimed the nations as his inheritance yet. There's still huge amounts of evil, brokenness, sin, selfishness in the world. We know that uh, because Christ has not yet fully implemented the victory that he won on the cross. But one day he will. He'll return again and he'll claim that inheritance, his rightful rule over all the nations. So for us, where do we fit into this psalm? What role do we play? And you look at Psalm 2, and if this is all pointing to Jesus, if this is pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, what's our place in this story? Well, really, we're in the role of the nations in this psalm. We, We are the ones who have been rebellious against God, aren't we? We're the ones who have at various times raged against God, tried to throw off the shackles of His Reign, we wanted to live independently of him. We, we are these nations in our own lives. And so we're called to do exactly what these nations are called to do. In verse 10, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. And then this strange verse in verse 12 kiss his son, or he will be angry. And your way will lead to destruction. That's a slightly uncomfortable phrase, there, isn't it? Kiss his son? What does that mean? It sounds a bit soppy. Uh, The son is obviously the king in the Psalm. And as an act of respect, often people would kiss the feet of a king. Uh, His his subjects and his servants, but also people that the king had conquered. Uh, Other nations that had come under the subjugation of the king, they would. Kiss the feet of the king to submit themselves to him to, to hope for his favor and his merciful treatment of them. Kissing the feet of the king was an act of submission and loyalty to the king. And I want to show you just one final passage where you see this, this picture of kissing the son being fulfilled in quite a literal way. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is at the home of Simon the Pharisee. And this woman comes in. She's probably a prostitute. She's called a sinful woman. That's probably a euphemism. She's probably a prostitute. Um, Absolutely despised woman of the day, full of shame, huge amount of social stigma around her. She's uninvited. She's unwelcome in this place. But she comes in anyway. She stands behind Jesus weeping. And then with her tears, she wets his feet. She dries his feet with her hair, and she kisses his feet. And she pours perfume on the feet of Jesus. Now, I don't know what was in her mind when she was going through that, and I doubt it was Psalm 2. But in an amazing way, that act of worship, that act of submission, perfectly fulfills this verse back in Psalm 2. Kiss the son, or he will be angry at you. It wasn't the woman that Jesus was angry at in that home. It was the Pharisee. It was Simon that he turned to, remember, and gave him that harsh rebuke, told him that Simon had not fulfilled his obligations, had not treated Jesus well. But this woman had come in, and Jesus welcomed her, and he received this act of adoration, of worship from her, and he said, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. In in doing this before Jesus, weeping and washing his feet and kissing his feet, she was kissing the feet of the Son of God. She was kissing the feet of the Son of David the one who would come to sit on David's throne. And, And she gives us a picture, I think, of what it means for us to fulfill this psalm in our own lives because what she has done was an act of pure worship. It's really what it means for us to kiss the feet of Jesus. I know it's a bit of an awkward image and a bit of an uncomfortable image, but really what it asks for from us is worship in view of who Jesus is, in view of his kingship, in view of the fact that he is God's anointed Messiah, the one who's established to have a kingdom that will never end, the one who's been given the nations as his inheritance. What can we do but worship him? What can our response be except to worship him, to fall on our faces like this woman, to pour our lives out as she did, to weep over our sin as she did? to bring our lives into submission to Jesus' kingship as she did. That's our response, right? To worship Jesus, to genuinely worship Jesus, the Messiah. And most of the time, I would say, especially during Advent, we don't do it. And we don't do it because this is a hard time of year. We're incredibly busy you know, a lot of you are sitting here, you're tired, aren't you? You're just tired. I can see it on your faces. And we're just, we just don't have energy. We're just exhausted. And we're just in survival mode. Just getting from here to Christmas is the ultimate mountain to climb. It's just survival. It's just getting through the day. And there's this irony here where Advent is supposed to be a season where we're kind of lost in wonder and we're worshipping, and we're expectant, we're opening our hearts to Christ, and we're, we're just allowing ourselves to be amazed by what it, what it is that God became a human being. And yet this is the very time of year where we are just so the volume has turned up so loud in our lives. We just don't even have the mental space to think about anything else. We come to church here, and we just sort of collapse into our chair for an hour and a half, and then we sort of back out into it in a few minutes' time. You know what I'm talking about, right? Because you're going back out into it into the fury of this time of year. And yet here's Jesus calling us to worship Him, calling us to to come before Him and spend some time with Him, thinking about who He is and freeing up enough of our mental and emotional space to actually connect with Him and not allow everything else to crowd that out. So on Thursday night, I was home by myself. Anna had gone out. And here I was, I finally had a little bit of time and I was tired, um, but I got my Chris Tomlin Christmas worship CD and I stuck it on and uh, just had a great time of worship, jumped on the piano, played along to some songs and really just tried to, to focus my mind and my heart on who Christ is and spend some time worshiping it, spend some time really doing what this psalm calls us to do, what this woman did for Jesus, just bowing down with my life to Him. You know, nothing special and nothing great in me, but just focusing on Him. And, you know, God lifted my spirit through that, just lifted me above some of the, the tedium of what life can become, just renewed me in the process of doing that. It reminded me of how important it is to do this stuff. Can we commit as a community that sometime between now and Christmas, we free ourselves up to genuinely worship Christ, I don't just mean going through the motions. It's so super easy to do that. I know how easy it is to sit in church and you just obligatorily roll out the lines of the songs. But even just on your own, find some time and find some space and set aside other things and just be with God. And just for, in whatever way you do that, whatever your pathway is to God, may not be music at all, that's fine. Maybe the words of this psalm can help you. But can you? are you willing to do this? Are you willing to actually resist the immense pressure that a thousand commitments are placing on you and say, this is actually who I am as a follower of Jesus. And if I'm not taking time this time of year to worship Christ, what am I doing? What does everything else mean if we're not doing this? If we're not genuinely, and I mean connecting our hearts to the heart of God. That's what I mean, turning your heart toward God. And for some of you, it's been an awfully long time since you've done that. I know how easy it is just to go through the motions, and some of you are just going through those motions now. And it's just when you really get down to it, the distance between you and God is immense. There's just a huge gaping chasm. You don't even know how to bridge that chasm. But that's okay because Christ has done that. All He's inviting you to do is just to come, as this woman does, bow down and worship Him. Bow down in confession and just bring everything you are to Him. Bow down in fresh surrender. Maybe there's parts of your life that you honestly need to hand over to God that you haven't handed over to Him. Parts of your life that are just not submitted. Decisions that you're just making and you're just plowing ahead and God's nowhere in that. You've not brought Him into that at all. You're just plowing ahead. You maybe need to slow down and just bring this to the feet of Jesus and ask Him to be involved in these things. Some of you need to remind yourselves that Jesus is the king because you're going through difficult circumstances and you need to be reminded. You need to let God himself remind you he's king over your situation. He's king over the heartache you're experiencing. He's king over the complexity of that situation you're trying to think your way out of. He's king over that relational strain that you're struggling underneath. He's king over that. He is reigning right now. He's reigning and ruling. You just need to come underneath that and be reminded of the kingship of Jesus, that he is enthroned above the earth. He's reigning, he's ruling, and he loves you. And he's for you. He really is for you. Some of you can barely even bring yourselves to to encounter Jesus like that, but he's inviting you to come and to do that. And simply to adore him. Like the Christmas carol says, "Oh, come, let us adore him. Have you spent any time recently just doing that? I know, guys, this is a struggle. We don't like this. It sounds a bit like we're veering into Jesus as my boyfriend territory here. We're not. It's okay. This is just adoration of God is such a good thing because we're we're acknowledging Christ as king, and we're just allowing our heart to be captured by that reality. It's devotion to God. It's actually saying more than just, I will follow you, but I adore you. And I genuinely want to serve you and, and respond to the great love of God. And we celebrate the fact that as we worship at the feet of Jesus, His anger's turned away from us. That's what the psalm says. Kiss the Son or He will be angry at you. We're, we're celebrating the fact His anger is turned away. He's not angry with you. He's not holding a scorecard out in front of you. He's not waiting to tell you off. His anger's been turned away by the cross. He's just meeting you with grace. That's the amazing thing about this King. King of all creation and yet He meets us with His grace. And we can, as the last line of the psalm says, find our refuge in Him. And maybe more than anything else, that's what we need to do, find our refuge in Him. Find some rest in Him. Rest for our souls. In all the weariness of life, and we're just feeling battle-weary, but finding rest for our souls in the presence of Christ. Some of you just need to rest in His presence. Be reminded of His goodness and His grace. And just allow Him to touch your life again. Just allow Him to renew you and just pour into your life fresh hope and fresh faith to lift you, to lift you up a little bit more, to help you to see new hope and to be able to focus you on Him. It's what Christ wants to do. He knows what you're going through, He knows exactly where you are, He knows your busyness, but He's inviting us to come and to worship Him genuinely and turn our hearts towards Him. So we're going to do that. We're going to do that by taking communion together, we're going to do that by singing a couple of songs together. And I just want to encourage you to open up your heart to Jesus. It's the easiest thing in the world to just go through the next few minutes and just not really connect deeply with Christ. But in whatever way you need to this morning, can I encourage you to just turn your heart towards God. Really spend some time talking, thinking about where you are in relationship to Christ the King. Thinking about Jesus enthroned over all creation and yet nearer to you than you are to yourself. That's the Christ we serve. That's Jesus, Messiah. And he's here, and he's longing for us to come to him and worship him. So let's enter into that. Let's worship Christ. Let's pray together as we prepare ourselves for that. Jesus, you know where our hearts are at, and you know everything about us. God, you know what we're carrying today. You know all the stresses and strains, and and you know the good things as well, or the things that are going great in our lives and our families and our circumstances. Jesus, you know us so well. But Jesus, regardless of where we are, you invite us to come and worship you. You invite us to serve you with fear and trembling, to celebrate your rule, to kiss your feet. And Jesus, we want to take that picture and we want to worship in that way. God, we're sorry for allowing so many other things to crowd out our relationship with you. We're sorry for allowing our lives to become so full up with other stuff that we we stop even listening to your voice and spending time with you. God, we want to worship you now, but not just now. We want to ask you to help us, especially in these coming weeks, to make the time to be with you, to just be still, to worship you, to find our refuge in you. God, even now as we do that, it just feels so different to the rest of our lives. But we want to do this more. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you, Christ the King. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources,